you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and go to Hebrews. We want to pick up in chapter 5, but obviously we need a running start to get back to where we were. So, very briefly, chapter 1. The writer to the Hebrews is establishing the preeminence of the Son, Jesus Christ, over all others who have spoken through the Lord or for the Lord, whether there's prophets or angels. And he is specifically noting how much higher the Son's role and position is than all the angels and all the special words that were given by the Father to the Son that were never given to any other angel. Jesus is not an angel. He is the Son. He is God. He is the apostle of our profession. That means the special delegate or ambassador. Um, He is the original one, messenger of God. So the word was spoken through him. And then in chapter 2, we uh, see that not only is he um, being uh, higher than the angels, but everything is going to be under him. The Father has put all things under his feet, both present and and the world to come. He says, well, we don't see that just yet, but it's coming. Okay? And he came to perform the work of salvation, which he did. And in that role, he became our high priest, the perfect high priest. And this theme of the high priest is going to be throughout the whole book. Just kind of hang on to it, but we're being introduced to that. Introduced to that as the high priest. The priest's job is to go between man and God, to do the things pertaining to God. Okay, That's his role. All right. And then in chapter 3, uh, we saw that uh, Jesus outranks even Moses. Right? You think about all the people that um, the natural Jews held in very high regard. Uh, angels who spoke for the Lord, prophets, Moses. And so he's going through each one and he's saying, Nope. Jesus is even farther than him. Moses was a good servant. He was a faithful servant in a house. But the one who builds the house has greater glory than the house itself. Well, Christ, Jesus, is the creator of all things. He builded all the house. So he outranks even Moses. And not a servant, but a son, rather. Okay. And then in chapter 4, he gives us the charge of let us to proceed with fear, lest any of us... Uh, through unbelief should fail to enter into the rest. And what that what rest is that referring to? And that's that's the, the rest that God has promised. The rest of being with him in glory. Um, he uses the illustration of those who didn't believe um, not coming into the rest of Canaan um, from their unbelief. And so we're to labor. Alright. And then we get a, ch- a charge. A charge that we are to hold fast. Hold fast our profession. And if you want a theme for really this whole book, it's that. Holding fast your profession. Because what's, what's the temptation here for um, these Jews who have been following Christ? Is that everyone who, um, in their culture who is not going that way is trying to pull them back to what they were before. And so the charge is hold fast. Don't give up. Don't surrender. <laughs> hold fast. Why? For we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, this is verse 15 of chapter 4, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain 
mercy and find help, grace, and find grace to help in time of need. All right, so we have that high priest. All right, so we're going to look at some of the differences between a natural high priest under the old law and our great high priest. How is he better? So, starting in the Old Testament, for every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God. That's their role. Their purpose is to deal with the things pertaining to God. That he may do two things, offering both gifts and sacrifices. You can think gifts in the terms of positive things that are being offered, thanksgivings, vows, and the sacrifices. Those could be the, the, the ones that are because of your sins, negative. Right? Offering both gifts and sacrifices. In that role, this high priest can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. So this high priest, he is able to uh, understand and have compassion on those who don't know any better. That's what it means by ignorant. Those who don't have the information. And then those who have gone astray. And why is he able to have that compassion? Because he himself also is compassed with infirmity. So as a man, he is surrounded by weakness. And in fact, as a man, he's got weakness throughout himself. And so he's not looking down his long nose of saying, well, you should know better uh, or whatever, that he is able to have compassion or pity on those that he is ministering for. By reason hereof, he ought, this being the infirmity, by reason hereof, he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sin. So part of those sacrifices he had to make were offerings for sins. He had to make them first for himself and then for the people. He's compassed by infirmity. He is a sinner. He had to do it for both himself and them. All right? And no man taketh this honor upon himself. You couldn't just volunteer and say, all right, I'm going to be a priest. Right? There was a whole issue with Dathan and Korah and all those who tried to say, we want to be priests, and God wiped them out. Right? There's a fire that came out and burned up 250 guys who had their sensors, and the earth clave open and squished some others like a bug. Right? Can't volunteer. You had to be ordained of God. No man taketh this honor upon himself, but he that is called of God as was Aaron. So Aaron was specifically called by God to be the priest, and his descendants were then authorized to be the, the priests after him. So, that's your Old Testament pattern. Let's look at our great high priest. So also Christ glorified not himself. Christ didn't volunteer. He didn't say, I'm going to do it. Rather, to be Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he said unto him, but he that said unto him, God the Father said unto the Son, Thou art my Son, today have I begotten thee. So this is a quote, right? That's Psalm 2, verse 7. The same one who said that, as he saith in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the same one who's identifying him as his Son is the same one who's saying, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Did Christ volunteer? No. He was called by God to this role. Okay? Father, Father, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, so this is referring to when Jesus was here in this world, when he had offered up 
prayers and supplications with strong cryings and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. All right, so he's in his flesh. He's offering up prayers, supplications, strong cryings, and tears. Now, remember the, the men, uh, high priests, they were offered up with gifts and sacrifices. So here it says he's offering up prayers. Everything about prayers being a, a gift or a sacrifice? Go to Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to try not to hit many tangents, but just briefly. Revelation 5 and verse 8. When he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. Odors are smells. Okay? So in the Old Testament, then there was many descriptions of these things that they're offering that would come up as a sweet savor for the Lord. Okay, okay, and so here, <coughs> your prayers have a sweet smell to the Lord. Uh, Christ is greater in all things. So if you have a sweet smell for your prayers, imagine the odors that radiated through heaven when Christ is lifting up those prayers and supplications and tears. Okay. Now, he's offering them up unto him that was able to save him from death. He's offering up to the Father. The Father could have. He could have spared the Son. That was his will. He chose not to. It clarifies and he was heard in that he feared. It's not that the father was ignoring him. He was heard in that he feared. He was, he was faithful in his, his love and his adoration and his fear of the father. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. This is part of becoming that perfect high priest is that he had to learn what it was like to be like us and to be subject to obedience and suffering. He learned, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, now this word perfect doesn't mean sinless. He was already sinless, but it means he became complete. The role that he had as high priest, he was fully there and complete in that. And he became the author you can say the captain of eternal salvation unto all unto all them that obey him called of god a high priest after the order of melchizedek okay so he is our our compassionate high priest we saw that back in 415 so just like the natural men could have compassion on the ignorant and on those that are out of the way, he is able to have compassion upon you and upon me when we're ignorant and when we're out of the way. He was made perfect for that role in the obedience and through his suffering. And he was called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. All right. Now the Hebrew writer is going to pause his thought here and he's going to lay down some hard some hard, I don't know, hard to be heard. A chastisement, if you will. 
It says, of, of whom we have many things to say. There's more that he needs to teach about Christ and about how he's of this order of Melchizedek. But there's a problem. It's hard to be explained, hard to be uttered, excuse me, it's hard to be explained. Why? Because the writer doesn't know how to say it? No. Because the audience, seeing ye are dull of hearing, that dull means slothful or lazy, inexperienced. Okay? Seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and become and become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. Brothers and sisters, we're to be teachers. I'm not the only teacher here. Each of us needs to get to where we can be teachers. And why are we not teachers yet? We're sluggish. We're all of our hearing. We're not exercising ourselves in the Word. It says it's described us of being uh, as those who need milk and not of strong meat. Right? You can get the illustration of that. Y'all ever tried to give an infant table food? Tend to choke on a little bit, right? What if you gave a, a brand new newborn? Right? The one who can only have milk. It won't go very well, right? So there is a emphatic charge for you and I to grow and to grow up so that we can understand more and teach more about our Lord. A, a thin, superficial knowledge of what who Christ is and what He's done is not good. That's not sufficient. We can start there, but we can't end there. Okay? For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, being the first principles of the oracles or the utterance of God, the basic basic doctrines, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful, unskillful, inexperienced, or ignorant, in the word of righteousness. We don't want to remain there as babes, as the infants who can only have milk. We need to be skillful. One who is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full age, someone who is mature. Even those, how do you become mature? Here you go. Even those by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. What's use? Use is Habit, uses practice, uses repetition. Over and over and over again, you are using your senses, your organs of perception, your ability to judge and discern. And that word exercised, literally the Greek word has the idea of a gymnast in a gymnasium, like the Greek Olympics and whatever. You're exercising your judgment, right? Discernment <coughs> takes practice, right? It's not just going to happen once. You're not just going to get it. But it is a diligent usage over and over and over again. Who by reason of use have their senses exercised to do what? To discern both good and evil. Discern, that's, that's, a, that's a judicial term. 
to be able to separate thoroughly is the root word, but to distinguish not only between right and wrong, but what's good and what's best. Right? To be able to discern the more excellent things. Okay? And to know where along the lines things fall. Okay? How are we doing that? By using our senses, exercising them, so that we can become skilled in the word of righteousness. Right? So we can be teachers of the word of righteousness. And so we can discern both good and evil. Alright, so he's got this aside where he's giving he's calling them out. Really, that they're requiring you know repetition of the basics, and he says basically in verse chapter six, I'm not going to go over the basics again. So we're going to leave those behind. If the Lord is willing, we're going to move on to the harder stuff. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, he said these are the basics. This is the milk. There's the basics. Let us go into perfection. Let's move on to the maturing stuff. We're not going to lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Basic doctrine. Of faith towards God. Basic doctrine. Of the doctrine of baptisms. Basic doctrine. Of the laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. He says, all these things you should already know. And so we're going to move on to something harder. It's hard to be uttered because you're dull of hearing, but we've got, we got to do it. This will do if God permit. All right. For it is impossible for those who have once were once enlightened, made to see, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to open shame, for the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, and receiveth blessings from them, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. All right. All that made sense? Read a lot of it. Probably not. Let's go slower. What's he talking about? This is this is some scary language. If they fall away, it's impossible to renew them again under repentance. All right. Remember all those Jews on the day of Pentecost? They heard Peter preach the Holy Spirit, and they were pricked to the heart. Men and brethren, what must we do? Repent, be baptized. Thousands are joining the church, right? Okay. So what if they decide later, nah, Christ isn't it. I've seen all these works of the Holy Spirit. I've seen people talking in tongues. I've seen miracles performed. But I'm going to go back to the old way. Just, just the law. Jesus is not... Not the Messiah. What are they doing? They're totally rejecting Christ. They're totally saying He is not the Christ. That wasn't the Holy Spirit moving in all those miracles. Right? And how can they do that? Well, it's because they're bearing thorns and briars. You say, well... As a child of God, should I be fearful about these passages? No. Because he that hath begun a good work in you shall perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. This is referring to someone who has been there and been part of the church, maybe joined the church, they believed. We talked about uh, Simon the sorcerer, right? He heard a preacher come into town. 
beforehand, he had been like a, a seducer of these people. Like they thought he was some kind of magic fellow. And he heard the preacher. And it says he believed and he was baptized. But then later, when he saw the gift of the Holy Ghost being given out by the apostles laying their hands on people, he's like, uh, can I pay you so I can have that power? And they said, whoa, buddy, your heart's not right. But you're still wrapped up in the bonds of iniquity. Right? And so there were folks who were participating in the church, but their heart wasn't there. They weren't born again. They were seeing all this stuff. And so if someone in that scenario leaves and says, no, I'm not going to follow Christ anymore, he's saying it's like they went and nailed him to the cross again. You know, that crowd in the beginning was yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And then later at Pentecost, Peter's like, whom you crucified with wicked hands, men and brethren, what must we do? Repent and be baptized. And then to abandon him again. That's what's being discussed there. And I, I mentioned this last week, but I think this uh, the verse in uh, 1 John 2.18 is probably the most helpful. It's referring to those who... Who were in the church and then they then they, they left they left altogether. It says, Little children, first John chapter two, verse eighteen, little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Anybody ever told to you the last days are coming? Yeah. They've been coming back since John's day. <laughs> we're in the last times. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that there is no lies of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and Son. So these people who are now denying that Jesus is the Christ, he's saying they are Antichrists. That's literally what it means. He's, saying that he's denying that he is the real Christ. He says they've gone out from us to manifest that they were not really of us, to make that plain, to reveal it. Okay? Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Okay? Now, you get this illustration in verse 7. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it. Alright, so your illustration's out. You're looking at the earth out there. It rains, things grow, Right? Well, here we've got two different things that are growing. On verse 8, you've got thorns and briars. Right? Do I have to do anything to this field back here for thorns and briars to grow? No. No, they just come up, right? That's their natural state. Thorns and briars are going to come up. If I go out there and I've done nothing to that field, am I going to find a pleasant herb garden with mint and cumin and uh, parsley and uh, whatever? I can't name any more, but you get the idea. No, right? There's got to be somebody involved in planting and tending that thing, right? Well, the person planting and tending is God. That's the difference. Dead in trespasses and sins, all we bear is thorns and briars. 
But when we're born again of the Holy Spirit, then the herbs grow. Meat for them, fit for them by whom it is dressed. God's dressing us. He is causing us to be one who bears spiritual fruit. Okay? So, verse 9 goes back to who is, who is the writer really talking to? He's, there are these people who are falling away and denying Christ. They're, he's the, they're antichrist. They're saying Jesus is not the Christ. That's a very serious, serious charge. Particularly from someone who's been in the church and has seen the, the miracles of the Holy Spirit. Because what are they really doing? They're sinning against the Holy Spirit. Right? That was that charge for the Pharisees who are saying, I've seen the work of God and the Holy Spirit, and I'm, obs- and I'm saying this is the work of the devil. Right? Is the unpardonable sin? But beloved, that which we're writing to, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. Better things of you and better things that accompany salvation. Though we thus speak. Right? So even though we've had to bring this up, and part of this, I think, is don't waste your time going to chase these people down. If they're completely falling away, and this is not falling away as in they've gotten into sin. That's not the falling away. The falling away is they're completely rejected Christ and saying, Christ is not Christ, and I don't need Him. Okay? But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. I'm convinced of better things of you. All right, nobler things, stronger things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. So we've had to mention this, but we're persuaded of better things. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. So these Hebrew folks he's writing to, they're workers. They've got work. They've got labor and love. They're, they're being diligent, which he've showed towards his name. How have they done that? And that you have ministered to the saints, past tense, and do minister, present tense. All right. So they are currently diligent in their labors, their works of love by ministering to the saints. Now, whether that's to the poor, whether that's to minister to those who are preaching, I don't know exactly what they're doing, but they're, they're diligent in their efforts there, okay? So that's good. And verse 11 says, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence. All right, so this is kind of, you know, that was the, the prop up. Now here's the, the, the stick, right? we got to say, here's where you got to improve on we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. The full assurance of hope unto the end. What's he mean by that? It means the totality of the gospel. Everything about it, right? We're babes in Christ. We only know pieces of it. I want you to show that same diligence to all of it. The full assurance that you can be completely not only convinced but able to articulate it and defend it and understand what it is what is that hope that you have why is it so much greater than anything that is in the world all right same diligence show the same diligence to the full assurance the entire assurance or consolation of hope how long do i want you to have that diligence to the end all right no retirement. <laughs> There's no to the end. Either your death <laughs> or Christ comes back. Unto the end. That ye be not slothful. That's the same word as that dull of hearing. Same word. Dull of hearing that ye be not slothful, 
but followers of them. So that followers means to imitate. Do the do 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 like them of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The full assurance of hope. You've got precious promises that have been given to you. And the pattern that you'll see throughout all the Old Testament and the New Testament is that those who with faith and patience eventually inherit the promises. So what will you have to have now? You have to continue in faith and in patience until the promises eventually come. Okay? So that's the pattern of faith and patience. Four. When God made promises to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. All right, let's go back to Genesis 22 and see specifically where this is referenced. Genesis 22, and we'll pick up, I guess, verse 10 to get context. Abraham is on the top of Mount Moriah. Isaac is bound upon the altar. He's been told to sacrifice his son. He's got his knife lifted up, ready to strike. Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord, who's talking? An angel. An angel of the Lord called unto him out of Abraham, out of heaven, saying, Abraham, Abraham. <coughs> and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thy hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham looked up his eyes and looked, and behold, there was the ram caught in the thicket by his horns. He took and offered him instead of his son. Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord provides. Uh, As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord, again, angel speaking on behalf of the Lord, called unto Abraham the second time. And said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Okay? So going back to <clears throat> Hebrews, it says, For when God had made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. And we see that. For the Lord, for by myself have I sworn. So you got two things. you got one, a promise, and then you've got an oath on top of that promise. And the oath it always goes by swearing by something greater. And there's nothing higher than he could swear by than himself. Okay? Saying, Surely I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Remember that pattern we talked about. Faith. His faith was evidenced by his obedience. He went to offer his son. He's living by faith, right? Obedience lives out the faith. Faith, he then patiently waited and obtained the promise. Now the promise there was that he was going to be multiplied. And and, um, and at the very end of that, it was that, And thy seed shall all the nations be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now we know from Galatians chapter 3 that that seed is referring specifically to Christ. 
All right, go to Galatians chapter 3 and in verse 16. And to Abraham and to his seed, singular, where the promise is made. He saith not, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Okay? Now, if you go over to John 8 and 56, you think about how long did he have to wait patiently until he received that promise about the Christ? Well, until Christ came. But he got to see it. John 8 and 56, it says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And you can read that whole chapter there as they're trying to figure out, what do you mean? You're not 50 years old. How do you know Abraham? Abraham, all the promises that were given to Abraham were eventually fulfilled. Faith and patience and the promises were fulfilled. All right? So, verse 15 of Hebrews 6, And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And that was the pattern that he had before. He'd had the promise that he'd have the, the promised son, and he had to wait for many years before that was received. All right, that was within his life, though. And then it, it gives the, the illustration for why the oath is important. It says, For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Of, okay, this is the pattern among men of if we've got some kind of dispute and you don't necessarily believe what I'm saying and I promise it, well, I can swear by something greater and then you believe me. All right? It's an assurance to you that, okay, he wouldn't make that swear because um, he wouldn't break it because that would be something bad that happened or whatever. That's what men would do so you can have that additional assurance. He says, well, the men do that. Well, God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, that's y'all, he is willing to show more abundantly the immutability of his counsel. Immutability, big word, it means his counsel won't change. All right? There's no changing to it. He confirmed it by an oath. So he gave the promises, and then he confirms it by an oath. All right? so, so you've got two different things, neither of which can change, and God can't lie for a strong consolation. So it says in 18 that by two immutable things in which is it impossible for God to lie. It's impossible to lie about the promise. It's impossible for him to lie about the oath. That we might have a strong consolation, a strong assurance, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. All right. Now, which exactly promise is this referring to? I'm pretty sure this is referring to Psalm 110, verse 4. So look at that. Psalm 10, verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he swore. He made the promise, and then he swore. That our, our Christ, our Savior, would be that high priest after the order of Melchizedek for forever. And by that we have the full hope. What is all this? What is the charge? Stand fast. Stand fast in the truth of Christ. That Jesus is the Christ and he's not going anywhere. And he's put in that position for forever. And there's no reason for you to depart. You have 
the ability to lay hold upon the hope set before us. The hope. Which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, so think about this word picture. Where is Christ now? He's sitting on the right hand of God, right? And so this hope is like a line that connects you directly where you are, all the way in the throne room of God, past the veil where we can't see, and it's there. And it's holding you, and it's secure and steadfast. Sure and steadfast. That that sure means secure. It's not going away. It's not going to come loose. It won't detach. And steadfast means stable. It's not wobbling. Right? You have a sure and steadfast anchor in this world. It's because of Christ. It's because of the hope of Him. And it's because of immutable, unchanging promises. What do you have to fear? Nothing. Which hope we have. I want y'all to just chew on that verse 19 throughout this week. That hope we have. That we might have a strong consolation. That God made these promises and then gave an oath just for your benefit. Because he wasn't going to breach his promise. But so that you can have an additional assurance that we might have a strong consolation. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. The hope of Jesus Christ. As we have an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast, which entereth into the veil, entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner for us is entered. Even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right. <clears throat> well, that brings us to Melchizedek, right? Who in the world is Melchizedek? You hear about him? There's not a whole lot of information about him. So let's go to chapter 7 and look at it a little bit, and then we'll go to Genesis 14 and see what other information there is. We'll hang on to it for till the end, okay? For this Melchizedek, because I might answer it. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. All right? He met him. He blessed him. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Abraham gives him a tenth part of all the spoils. First being by interpretation, king of righteousness. Melchizedek means right, righteousness, equity. He is the king of righteousness. And after that also the king of Salem. Salem means peace, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descendant, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. So it doesn't have a recorded father or a recorded mother. Um, without descent, that's referring to his genealogy. You don't have like with Shem or Ham or everybody else where you can check all the way back to Adam. He just shows up on the scene in Scripture. Was he miraculously born? No, I don't believe so. I think that would be reading into it. Um, but those details aren't given from him because he is creating a type that Jesus will be able to perfectly fulfill. 
because he is made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest forever. So he is a, a simile, a similitude. All right, so go to Genesis 14, and let's look at all the information we've got on Melchizedek. All right, Genesis 14. All right, this is the days of Abraham, obviously. Um, you can actually track um, from the flood using the genealogies to see how what how many years it had been since uh, since the flood when uh, Abraham came into Canaan. Right, it had been 376 years. Somehow I kind of thought it was farther than the flood, but no, it's just 376. And then Ishmael is going to be born at uh, 387. So Ishmael is not born yet in chapter 14, and he's already in Canaan. So you got that little window, sometime between 376 and 378 years post-flood, of when you have this scene occur where Lot and Abraham, Lot, his nephew, have already parted ways. Their cattle and everything was just too big. They were just devouring the land, and it was causing some fights. And so they, they parted company, and Lot took the plain of Jordan and pitched his tent towards Sodom. Well, eventually he's camped out in Sodom itself. Well, there's going to be a big battle. There's four kings. Um, I think they all really report to Chattaloamar. Um, he's like an early Persian king. Um, one of these guys, uh, Amraphel, king of Shinar. Shinar is a plain up in Babylon. Okay? So these four kings come down from really far away, and they come down, um, and they had conquered everything, and everyone was subject to them for about 12 years. And then in the 13th year, um, they rebelled. And so those four kings, they come on down with their army, and they just whoop everybody. I mean, everybody around Canaan, around Ed- what will eventually be Edom, and what will eventually be Moab. These people don't exist yet. Um, so all the nations that were there beforehand, they're whooping everybody, and including the city kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and Admah and Zeboim and Bela. All right? So all these kings, they try and battle together, and they just get their tails whooped. All right? And so... They flee away to the mountains, and these victorious kings um, take all their stuff. They go into the city, and they take all their stuff and all the people there, and that includes Lot, right, and all his family and his stuff. Well, somebody comes and tells Abraham, and Abraham, uh, who's, you know, in his 80s now, so he's got all these servants who have been born in his household. He's got a personal army of about 318 guys. And so he arms them, and he says, all right, guys, let's hightail it. And so they're down in what the area will be Judah and Hebron, and they start going north, and they this is like hundreds of miles they're traveling to catch up with them, and then they get up to catch up with them and by night, and they divide their forces, and they're just attacking them, and the guys start fleeing, and they flee, you know, another 80-something miles um, up into Syria, up near Damascus, and, and they just, they whoop them. They completely do. All right? So much so that they got all the goods back and all the people that were captive, including Lot and his stuff, and they start the long walk home. Well, the people down south heard about it, and so folks are coming out to meet them because this is a pretty big deal. I mean, this is somebody who'd conquered the whole region in one go, and the Lord blessed Abraham and his little puny army of 318 men um, to, to defeat them. And so the king of Sodom, he comes out, um, and at the same time, verse 18, you have Melchizedek. It's righteousness. Melchizedek, king of Salem, he brought forth bread 
and wine. So early reference to what we'll have communion service, right? He brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. The Most High, that means supreme, the highest. And uh, the God there is an L, or strength, the Almighty. The highest Almighty. All right, he was a priest, Most High God. And he blessed him. So Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram, name hadn't been changed yet, Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the spoils. Now, this army had conquered the whole region, as a whole massive amount of spoils, and he's given a tenth of it to Melchizedek, right? given to the priest of the Most High God. All right? and, uh, and then the king of Sodom pops up and says, Hey, you, know, you give me the persons, and you can take the goods for yourself as spoils for the victory. And Abraham says, I've lifted up my hand unto God. I've sworn, basically, um, that I'm not going to take a thread, even down to a shoe latchet. I mean, that's basically, basically the, uh, the shoelace of like a sandal. I'm not going to take the littlest bit from you um, unless you'd say that you've made Abraham rich, um, except for the portion that the folks have already eaten and for the the three guys who came in confederacy with me. All right. That's the full scene. That's all we know about Melchizedek. He appears out of nowhere. He's the king of the city of Salem. That's later we call that Jerusalem. Jerusalem means founded in peace. Um, And his name means righteousness. His parents aren't recorded. His birth isn't recorded. His death isn't recorded. He is a priest. There's no priest that comes after to replace him. And so all the way that God presents Melchizedek as this mortal man is going to show up as the type that Christ is going to perfectly fulfill. Okay? So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 7. All right. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and yeah, it was a slaughter, he met him, and he blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abraham, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, all those spoils, he gave a tenth part to Melchizedek, first being by interpretation king of righteousness. Man, can you think of a better name for Jesus? He's the king of righteousness. All right. And after that, king of Salem, the king of peace. All right. Without father, without mother, without descent or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, none of that is recorded about Melchizedek, but is made like unto the Son of God. The similitude, he's like similar to the Son of God, abideth a priest forever. You know, Aaron was only a priest for so long, and then his son, and then his son, and then this son, and this son, all the way down. But there's no one that came after Melchizedek. And that's the type for Christ. Christ is going to fill that role, and he is going to occupy it. Forever. Okay? So, now let us consider how great this man was. All right? He's getting into these things that are hard to be uttered, hard to be understood. All right? He says, let's look and see how great Melchizedek was. All right? Unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. All right? Now, we've been talking about knocking down some of the kind of idolly stuff within the, the Jewish culture, right? You, you worship, not worship, but you put on a pedestal Moses and prophets and angels how about Abraham? He's really high up there, right? In the pecking order, he said, 
Melchizedek outranked him. And by, as we're going to see, Christ outranked him. All right, but Melchizedek outranked him. How great was this man, Melchizedek, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, so these descendants of Aaron, who are of Levi, they receive the office of the priest, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. So under the Old Testament law, they had the commandment. You take tithes of your brothers, that is of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham, but he whose descent is not counted from them receiveth tithes from Abraham. So he said, this is not under the Levitical tithing process. This is completely separate. He didn't come out of Abraham. He received tithes from Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. So God had given these wonderful promises to Abraham, and yet here this man is putting blessings upon him. Verse 7 says, And without all contradiction... The less is blessed of the better. So the less there is Abraham. The less is blessed by the better. The better being Melchizedek. You and I are blessed by the better and that Christ is better than us. Without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes. Again, under the Old Testament law, the priests, they receive tithes. The Levites receive tithes. But there he receiveth them of whom it is witnessed that he liveth. Right? There's no recording of his death. Right? Like it's just paused. But that's what Christ is going to fulfill perfectly with his everlasting life. And as I may so say, Levi also, which receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. Right? So uh, I heard about a mother who got uh, pulled over in the HOV lanes and she said, well, I'm pregnant and so... You know, you can't, I've got two people. Right? They're, they're still arguing that ticket or whatever, but the idea is that the, the baby was still inside and um, she wanted to get out of the ticket. Well, here, it's saying that Levi, even though he wasn't born yet, he was still in the loins of Abraham. When Abraham paid that tithes, it's the same way as Levi was paying those tithes too. Okay? Even though they had the commandment, you know, under the law. For I say, Levi also, which receiveth tithes under the law, Paid tithes in Abraham. Paid it to who? To the better. To Melchizedek. To that type. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore... Alright, here's a question. Question. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron. So Psalm 110, verse 4, when the Lord swear unto self that thou art forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek, that occurred way after the law had been given. And so the question is, if it was, if perfection was possible under the old, under the Levitical, why would he say this new? Right? And the answer is, he wouldn't. Because perfection wasn't possible. So, for the priesthood being changed... There is made of necessity a change of also of the law. So there's a change. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance to the altar. So it's talking about Jesus by birth was from Judah. He wasn't by Levite. Right? There's nothing in the tribe of Judah that says you're going to be a priest or you're to have tithes or you're to offer gifts and sacrifices. Verse 14 says, For it's evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of the tribe which Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. And it is far more evident, 
more abundantly manifested clear. There's, there's like three or four different superlatives within the, the Greek there. It's really interesting. Um, it is far more superabundantly, evidently clear that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arrives another priest, that Jesus fits all those things under the type of Melchizedek. Okay? Who is made not after the law of carnal commandments, that's the Old Testament, that's the Levites, but after the power of an endless life. For he that testifieth, thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. What is the... How can you see that he has that role? What, what gives him that authority, that power to be that priest is his endless life. Right? He's not going to die like those human priests and their Levites, that he is going to continue. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there verily is a disannulling of the commandment going before, so that Old Testament um, structure, before because of the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law could make nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Remember that hope we have, that sure anchor, sure and steadfast anchor to our soul that goes within? That's the hope we have through Jesus Christ. That's how we draw nigh to God. Not by the Old Testament law. Remember, these folks are, stand fast. Don't go a different way. Stay with Christ. By the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch, not without an oath, he was made a priest. Alright, so the Old Testament with the priest, they weren't made priests by an oath. It was just Aaron was called, and then they followed thereafter. And so here you've got even a better level for Christ, because he was not only called, but he had an oath as well. For those priests were made without an oath. But this, with an oath, by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 verse 4. By so much was Jesus made a surety, a pledge, of a better testament. And they truly were many priests. They, ultimately, they were many. Right. Why couldn't you just have one? Because eventually they get old and wear out and die. There were many because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, Christ, he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Because of that, wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost. Right? How strong is your perception of Christ? Do you think there's anything too hard for him. I think there's any of his children that he is going to lose. No. Because he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto Christ by him. Is there any other way that come unto God by him? No. No other way. And you're only going to come unto God by him because God's drawing you. But there's no other way. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He's the light. Christ is the sinner. He outranks all. <laughs> Seeing that he ever liveth. Again, he lives forever. He ever liveth to make intercession 
for them. He's the mediator. For such a high priest became us, it's fit for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, he has no sin, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. Why is he so much better? He only had to do it one time. In Old Testament law, you had the morning sacrifice, you had the evening sacrifice, you had the monthly sacrifice, you had the annual sacrifice. It was over and over and over. It was blood after blood after blood after blood. And there was, there was no end to it because it was unprofitable. There was nothing, it couldn't accomplish it. All it could do is set up the type for the real that would come. Okay? He needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sin. He doesn't have to offer one for himself. He was perfect, sinless. And then for the peoples, for this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity or sin or weakness. But the word of the oath, Psalm 110 verse 4, which was since the law, after the law in time, when Psalm 110 verse 4 is written, the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son a priest who is consecrated forevermore. That is the role that he is in now. And that consecrated means he's complete. He's perfect. You have the perfect high priest, one who is compassionate, touched by your feelings, able to be the perfect mediator between man and God. That's what a mediator is, someone who can, can speak to both. He's lived and walked in our shoes, did it without sin, and he is God. He is the one who is authorized and ordained to deal with the things pertaining to God. He's the only one, and he's perfect. So again, you're writing to these Hebrews of those who uh, are being pulled and tempted to walk away from Christ. Even though you've seen what's going on, it's, you need to know that he's, he's the best. He's the pinnacle. There's nothing else. In every way, he surpasses the old. There's nothing about that where he does not outrank, infinitely so. This is the high priest that you have. This is the high priest that I have. And y'all, we need to be diligent in our study and our understanding so that we can have that full hope and assurance that we can be teachers, that we can be encouragers of others, not with just general platitudes, but with the word. We should be skilled in the word of righteousness. Because we have a high priest who is worthy of our love, worthy of our affection, and worthy of our time and, and study. This is not second fiddle. Thank you all for your time and attention.